welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. We are live on YouTube. If you're listening on the podcast, this is the CCM Investing Power Hour. This is the 26th one we do, and we do it live on YouTube every Thursday, 12 p.m. Pacific time, 3 p.m. Eastern time, right as we head into the end of the trading day. And the only rule is that we have no preparation. So we come in, we know we're going to be talking investing, we know we're going to be talking business, financial markets, whatever, but we cannot have any formal preparation, just stuff we've seen in the last week. Ryan, how are you doing this week? Are you ready to talk? Um, uh, I guess we, uh, we have no idea. So uh, any, any fun topics on your mind right now? Well, Google is studying, shutting down Stadia. I find that kind of interesting. Um, for anyone that doesn't know, Stadia was Google's cloud gaming initiative that they were working on. Um, and they are not... I think most people, most of our listeners are probably our age and are like familiar with the gaming landscape. But if you're not familiar with the gaming landscape, um, they are not really a big part of it in any way, or they haven't been historically. And so this was kind of a random push, I guess you could say. Yep. And we'll get into it. But first, we need to talk about our new sponsor for the rest of the year and hopefully even longer. And that is Seven Investing, the presenting sponsor and exclusive sponsor on Chit Chat Money. Uh, seven investing members get uh, the first of each month, seven research reports. As you can tell, they like the number seven at about 1,000 to 2,000 words. They're write-ups on an individual company uh, and giving mostly you know, a buy recommendation and why the analyst likes them. They have seven different analysts that each write one up each month. Uh, if you want to learn more, I'd go to back to some of our interviews with some of the team, check out their website, we're actually going to be doing a segment this week. Uh, we haven't named it formally, but basically just maybe talking about some of their free stuff they offer and making it a little segment that will be fun to discuss because they've put out some great free content as well. So check them out at 7investing.com. And if you go to the subscribe page, make sure to use our promo code MONEY. That is M-O-N-E-Y. If you, for some reason, cannot spell money, is in <laughs> the show notes. But yeah, use promo code MONEY and get $100 off your annual subscription for life. That is a 25% discount on their premium subscription. We're going to be talking about them more throughout the episodes for the rest of the year. So you get a great overview of what their offering is. And we'll surely have some of the seven investing members on the show. Yeah. And I'm looking at their August recs, which I thought were a fun bunch. Um, One of them is something that we've been buying Okay. I can't, say, I can't say what. Well, we can't say either. Yeah. So, so maybe that's the tease that listeners need. But yeah, <laughs> the code is money. So, uh, interesting. Rex. Rex will come out. Shoot, they will have come out. Their sep. Their no, their October Rex will have come out by the time this airs on a podcast. That is correct. So check them out. Perfect timing. And if you try them out, 
Make sure to use our code money. All right, let's get to the topics today. Stadia, start out with Stadia, Ryan. Keep going on, on with that if you want. Yeah, so the news this morning is that they are going to start to wind down uh, the, the, the Stadia business. Apparently, there were thousands of employees in this Stadia initiative, which is shocking to me. I did not know they had that many people working on this. Um, I'm just kind of reading through it now. I mean, I saw the headlines. Basically, they're going to like officially shut it down on January 18th. Um, there was a lot of people that there was kind of Stadia, I think, was eating its words probably now. Like the head of Stadia was saying, no, we're really committing to this. This is like Google is really committed to getting into gaming. And then, you know, three years later, they're, they've shut it down. Um, and then Stadia themselves, like, three months ago was like, no, we are not shutting down, blah, blah, blah. Like we're, we're really committed to this. <laughs> Lo and behold, three months later, they are shutting down. So kind of interesting. It's Google's stock is down today. And that might just be correlation to the market generally, because the market's down when we're talking this is Thursday. So um, I think the NASDAQ's down like 3%, but 3.6, but who's counting? I guess everyone, but the uh, yeah. So I don't think investors are reacting to the stadium news, but what it does kind of tell me tells me two things. First of all, there's a duopoly in the console business. Well, I guess you could call it a what is that a triopoly? But oligopoly. If you include, if you include Switch, yeah, oligopoly is, is oligopoly three. Yeah. All right. Well, it's an oligopoly then. But uh, oligopoly is. It's, it's many, so that's how that's what you call it. Is there one for three? Uh, I mean, usually say oligopoly, monopoly, Whatever. duopoly, oligopolies, three or higher. Okay, so I guess you could call it an oligopoly, but really within like the AAA games, like I would say there's a duopoly pretty much. Switch is kind of its own thing. Um, it's sort of its own. You're just playing a different set of games on the Switch. Um, and so it, for me, confirms how much of a moat those two businesses have and how hard they are to disrupt because there's just no way. Like, if any company were to do it to try to like, be an entrant into the market today, I think Google would have the capability to do it. And they're, or they're at least doing it from a position of power. There's really no way for them. that They've basically thrown in the towel. They said we, were not a lot, we weren't able to get enough users on Stadia's system, that totally makes sense to me. I don't know why anyone would be on Stadia over PlayStation or Xbox. So, uh, yeah, they are shuttering it. But it also tells me that perhaps Google's core business right now is suffering a bit because they're trying to hit their numbers, probably their profitability numbers, in maybe the next year, or maybe they think that the next year is going to be tough. And so they are shuttering some of their more speculative operations to make sure that they meet their guidance. Does that, am I reading too much into the tea leaves or do you think that's realistic? Uh, it's definitely possible that they're doing that, but I'd also hope they just saw that if they had all these employees and no users, that it was just hemorrhaging money. And like they mentioned the last few months, they're doing some cost restructuring or however like they call it. Basically, getting rid of bad expenses that are not really, you know, getting a good return on them. And this seems like a great candidate 
especially if the expenses were much higher than we thought. You know, you have thousands of employees. Let's say it's like three thousand. You're each paying them healthy salaries because they're in that field. Probably all everyone that's in a technical role is, I don't know, one hundred fifty thousand at least. Probably closer to two hundred thousand. That's expensive, and there's also the cloud costs. There's also the just game acquisition costs where the rumors were that they were paying, say, Take-Two Interactive, I think an upfront cost of like, I mean, it's not that relevant for either of the businesses, but like tens of millions of dollars just to get Red Dead Redemption onto the uh, streaming service because no one actually wanted to bring their games on there. So it kind of shows the network effect of uh, the Xbox and PlayStation ecosystems where, yeah, Xbox and PlayStation don't even have to pay anyone to get on there maybe they pay people to do exclusives but um they're paid they're paid for that for the distribution on their platform i mean no i'm yeah i'm saying they don't have to pay other you know they don't have to pay studios to bring their games onto xbox i know i'm saying they get paid yeah studios pay them to be on their platform it's like the inverse yeah so yeah i mean stadia was you know, it was one of those where everyone said at the start it was destined to fail, and is pretty obvious it was. Um, I don't even think we had, we weren't even in the industry. I mean, I think anyone could have looked at that that just kind of has played video games and knows that that wasn't going to succeed. Springboarding on that, it made me think: Does this make you optimistic or pessimistic? Because I didn't really know how to think about Netflix's strategy within gaming. Um, because it's a little bit different. They're not going full throttle and it's, 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 it's not trying to replicate any of the other uh, current platforms. Yeah. I, I, I don't really know what Netflix's gaming strategy is, honestly, because they've kind of gone all over the place between buying like mobile studios, developing their own games. And, and the games themselves, there's no real like theme to these things. Like some of them are uh like the licensing or leveraging their own ip to build new games for it but then some of them are just like random like point p they they acquired a game called point p what the what is what the heck is that i don't know it's like one of those like mobile casual concept games like maybe it's like puzzle type stuff it has no tie to their ip the waiting in line and sitting on the toilet games yeah, I mean, pretty much. So it's just like, there's no cohesive, and they haven't been very clear about what their strategy is. They said any content spend that they're going to have on gaming is just it's going to stay within their content budget. So it'll just replace linear content or like video content. So it's not like it's on top of it. It's basically just to replace it. So at least, you know, they're not taking like extra risk on top of it, but I would like them to be a little more clear about what their strategy is. I don't think there's any world in which they can really be a winner in the AAA business or like the console game business or whatever ends up being cloud gaming without acquiring a studio. Yeah. Well, or they got to, I mean, they'd have to spend a lot more money. Um, I kind of think there's a just a few different issues with Netflix's strategy where it seems sound like, all right, we're going to invest in some games. We're going to make them a, a behind the subscription. And if they get a lot of use, um, that's another reason to subscribe to Netflix, right? But given the high 
Okay, so if you want to attract lots of players to games, you have to make them super interactive given the high bar with all the other games out there. And in order to make them highly interactive um, and constantly having updates and all that good stuff, which is what all the popular games do today, you have to spend a lot of money on development costs. And in order to get that return on the development costs, you typically have to monetize through multiple different strategies with the upfront game costs, microtransactions. Um, advertising is not as big, but has been growing, especially in mobile. And with Netflix's strategy of not having advertisements right now, maybe with their launch of the advertising support, it's here they will do advertising. And then not having you know game purchases with any a la, a la carte and not having microtransactions, I just worry the return on the investment because there has to be so much upfront cost is not going to be high. And if they stay with the really, really easy to make mobile games, it's just not going to move the needle because those games are a dime a dozen. Yeah. It's also harder to calculate like the return on investment. If, if there's not like a la carte transactions or a la carte purchases or microtransactions, like if it's just a part of the bundle, or just a part of the subscription, like you can see, like yeah, they played with it, like they played Point P or whatever they played your Witcher game. But would that have kept them there? Like, is that the actual thing that's keeping them there? I think it's probably hard to tell without any other form of monetization, like right. how much they really value it. So yeah, and also it's I don't, kind of that's the, kind of yeah. So the monetization thing's the other part that frustrates me about like the. They have not been clear about the strategy. If yeah. it's just a part of the subscription. It, it reminds me. Like yeah. So you don't know whether like, okay, if someone, yeah, they can maybe see if churn improves. Um, and we don't know the numbers. They know better than us. But uh, you have, okay. Let's say you have a world, two separate worlds. One where Netflix doesn't do games and one where Netflix does games. And you see that someone plays like uh, this X individual user is playing uh, video games on Netflix in this other world, you don't know whether they would not churn if, or excuse me, you don't know whether they would churn if the games weren't there. It kind of reminds me of the Amazon Prime where they're spending $10 billion or whatever on content. You don't know whether that's actually keeping people around, if you get what I mean, or whether it's just wasted cost and the churn actually isn't down because of it. Uh, Scotland, yeah. which uh, thank you for the comment. I think we agree on this one. Says Netflix should lean into first party games about their shows like a triple A Stranger Things title. Ubisoft also, oh, I guess we'll keep the second one in the acquisition here. What do you think about that? But it will require lots of more spending. That's kind of the big hiccup here, right? I think it's just a, do it's a totally different craft. Like, Takes it, like five. It requires five yeah. totally different talent to have success with it. It created requires just totally different teams and typically hundreds, hundreds of developers. But yeah, beyond just the actual developers, like it's a different Like there's a creative component to it that's just different and requires a different skill set than creating a show. I would imagine. Um, yeah, and a mobile game and a casual mobile game. Yeah, so I would rather just see them license it like Disney but, does with its IP. Yeah, but that's just not a needle mover. Especially, uh, Maybe it is if you have Disney's level of stuff, but I think Netflix should either...
do what you're saying, yeah, and not embrace it heavily on their own platform or acquire a studio or excuse me, a publisher like Ubisoft is probably, you know, small. Um, like Scotland said here, Ubisoft keeps begging to be bought. I agree. They have some great IP that could be used. Uh, you could have Assassin's Creed, you know, with Netflix would be a great pairing. What are the but other they, ones? Tom they, Clancy, Far Cry. I mean, lot. yeah, but they just got that ten cent investment. So yeah, it's not, just they're not gonna be bought. It's not. It's not gonna. You know, it's who knows though. Ten cent is you know they're an investment company for, through and through. They they could if they give the right you know the right price, um, they would go with that, but. The thing is, if they're, if you're gonna invest internally on AAA games, you can't distribute solely through the Netflix subscription because it'll be a failure. Unless they can crack cloud gaming, which can make, which comes back to Stadia. There's just, it's the mountain they have to climb to crack cloud gaming. Netflix is high. It's just, I, I think, near impossible for them. The only, how would they, how would they even do it? There's no way. There's just like, well, you'd have to go to one of the infrastructure providers. That's not what I mean. I mean, there's no way that you'd have to get buy-in from all the publishers, which we saw Stadia's problem with that. A lot of upfront costs on that, and they didn't even get the users because you can play them anywhere. Or you'd be it'd be so costly to develop your own games to build on it that it just isn't worth it. It worse isn't worth the risk. I'd be surprised if there's like a ton of overlap, like the bulk. All right. Yes. Netflix is a huge user base, but the bulk of their, like not that many of them are probably like intense AAA gamers. Yeah. They have, I think estimated, uh, you know, they have 200 some million subscribers, but like 800 billion active users just because of the family overlap and the, the password usage, password sharing, excuse me. I mean, very few of those are gamers. What? Probably fifty to hundred billion. Something AAA like that. gamers. Yeah, like I mean, gamers. Yeah, because I guess it that, opens up the pie for more than console gamers. But like, you got to get a controller, right? We're we're talking if Netflix was going to do cloud gaming, right? Yeah, the- you'd have to you'd have to get a controller. Yeah, and that's easier said than done. It's hard to make one that works well. Yeah. I mean, maybe there's a world in which they can do it, but I don't see them getting the buy-in from the publishers. At this point, I think Xbox and PlayStation are like the railroads, essentially. Like Xbox is trying to become more, but those two consoles are like the railroads where, yeah, the, yeah. What's yeah. their their relationship with, and like EA and Activision are like the Standard Oil or like, um, kind of. There's who, a lot. Who, who more. was it? Who was it that was getting the sweetheart deals of like all the railroads where it's like? We we have this relationship. We don't want to ruin it by letting you get like having to build for a Netflix game or a standard, Netflix it, infrastructure. Standard. Uh, I don't know. Standard Oil, U.S. Steel. I forget something like that. It's sort of like that, but it just feels really hard to disrupt that relationship between the publishers yeah. and the console systems right now. Yeah, the only people that can disrupt them are themselves. What they're trying to do by building out. Placed, uh, I mean, Xbox is a little more ahead, but Sony and uh, Xbox are both trying to build out cloud services and subscription services or whatever with, with the cloud gaming stuff. And maybe that evolves beyond the hardware eventually, right? But they're the only ones that can do that because they already have the user base that they can uh, 
utilized, right? They're the only ones that can tr transition their core users over and then expand their user base. No one can come in and start. It's just, there's, there's too many hiccups, I think. Um, you know, I, th or, I find it funny. I almost think, the more that I think about it, I think the path to success in gaming for them is tri is AAA before mobile. For Netflix? Yeah. Explain, explain your thesis. All right. Let's say they launched a gaming component within their Netflix app. So you could pick either games or movies, whatever. Games are linear TV, video TV. Um, and then you can go, and they already obviously do have the scale. They have tons of, what would you say, 800 million active users. People could go to the games. If they've already reached that level of scale, I think there's not that much harm in assuming that the development doesn't change that much for like EA and Activision to release a game on Netflix as it does on Game Pass. You know what I mean? Like, so if the cloud gaming, if, if the two basic games are the same in the like world where that is, yeah, in the world, in a world where the technology, the infrastructure for cloud gaming is, is all sound, it's all ready. Right. I think publishers would be willing to put their stuff on there. Netflix could basically replicate what they did with video where they ha where they're using everyone else's content, running probably a higher price subscription for gaming included, and then occasionally releasing their own games as well and doing it gradually. That seems more viable than this like incoherent mobile strategy. Like yeah. I'm not sticking around on my on my Netflix subscription because I had a fun time on Point P or one the of Stranger these mobile the, games. The Stranger Things mobile game, yeah. Here's there's the, no ties other than Roblox. There's no like there's very little mobile gaming loyalty. I feel like like I am uh, not going to. You mean on platform or what? So let's say if a game was only on Netflix, I couldn't get it anywhere else on my mobile phone. And I didn't have a Netflix subscription, I'd probably just play a different game. There's so many options. Yeah, I agree with that. Also, the, here's the only hiccup with that, say, the Netflix AAA strategy of you know licensing or whatever, and then trying to produce their own, and where it makes it way way harder than uh, than what they would do in TV and movies is that in video games for AAA especially, a few franchises dominate playtime. And the same franchises seem to dominate each and every year. Uh, with, you know, sometimes a new one comes out, Fortnite, uh, well, Valorant, uh, gosh, I'm forgetting a few other ones, but it's few and far between Apex Legends. Um, so if they were trying to produce their own AAA content, it would be like, <laughs> you can't just say, okay, we're going to lose The Office and that's fine. It's basically like if The Office had not just how popular it was on Netflix. It was extremely popular on Netflix. It would be like if The Office was five times as popular from Watch Hours with how the comparison is to a game like Grand Theft Auto, Fortnite, FIFA, whatever. Yeah, but I did see that once you, if you're paying like a subscription to access to all these games, like within Game Pass, I've seen a lot of people say that they're more willing mm. to try out new games because it's That's free, fair. it's included in the membership. So maybe that sort of is an equalizer across engagement time. That could be true. That could be true. Um, I, I still think it would be when it would still it wouldn't make it as as diversified as move as TV or movies though. I don't I don't think. No, I mean you still have like the the 
on any games that are interactive, you still have to have like the here, you, have here's, reach, you have to reach a certain level of scale. Here's a good point by Scotland as well that I think you brought up earlier, but forgot to bring up for the problem here. You have to make the games exclusive to Netflix, and you can't do that and still be successful because the only reason the big publishers are successful is because they're across everywhere. If a Netflix game was not on PC, Xbox, PlayStation, Switch is kind of its own beast, but still. Um, yeah, I, I, you're right. You know, you know what I mean? You'd have to get such large scale to get that return on investment. Yeah, it'd be inferior also to, the, to Game Pass. If, if they were exclusive, like if they just kept it all on there. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by ourselves. If you're hearing this now, we know you're a Chit Chat Money listener, but if you want to get more than just our free episodes, you can become a Chit Chat Money Plus subscriber. Within the subscription, members get access to our weekly not-so-deep-dive episodes, our monthly episodes detailing one of the holdings in our investment fund, Arch Capital, and then they also get written work, so newsletters and research files to go along with each not-so-deep-dive episode. Am I missing anything? We should talk about the themes that we do each month. So each month we choose a theme based on whatever we want. So last month we did video games. This month we're doing housing. Next month we're doing engineering software, I believe. And then the following month we're doing website and e-commerce software. We choose those because it's, you know, a great way to investigate a different industry. And if you want to subscribe to CCM Plus, go directly through Apple Podcasts or Spotify or through the link that will be in each one of our show notes. It is only $5 a month. You heard that right. $5 a month. Perfect to try out. If you like what we have to offer, we hope you'll subscribe. All right, let's talk. Uh, I think we've hit 20 minutes on that. So let's do okay. another topic. One more, unless you have final thoughts. Well, while we're on the gaming thing, apparently this Saudi gaming investment fund is thinking about they're apparently rumored to be acquiring a company for $13 billion like tomorrow. Well, what is that? Hopefully it's not. I have yeah. no idea. <laughs> Hopefully it's not the two ones in our portfolio that are that are uh, traded higher multiples. It, it probably wouldn't I know. $13 Maybe billion is such an awkward, like, I can't think of any company that that would be. I could be, pray could, it's not take two. Well, that, I mean, that would be, come on. That would not happen. But because... Uh, Simply because Take Two is trading like a twenty billion dollar market cap. However, it's probably private, right? It could be like could be the maker Ubisoft. of Ubisoft. Oh yeah, Ubisoft's a good choice. Um, but maybe you're going to be eating your words there. But they just had the ten cent investment, so it feels like they wouldn't. It feels like they wouldn't have done that ten cent investment if they had this one. If they had acquisition queued up. Uh, the other thing is like maybe that's true. Ca- yeah. How how big was Capcom? Capcom's not going to sell given their philosophy, though. Capcom also was much smaller than that. And much, much smaller. If we're looking, let me just give a quick look on the Yeah, I went to the US. It's like $5 billion. I just don't... There's That would be quite the investment. It, I, I'm guessing it could be... I'm forgetting. I think it's Riot Games makes PUBG. That's very, very popular. Riot Games. I think that could be it. Could be private if you get what I mean. Like, you know, not not a publicly traded company. Is it PUBG? I have no idea. There's so many games. No, League of Legends and Valorant. I mean, yeah, that's League of Legends and Valorant are very very popular. Um, all right. Well, that could be exciting. Good news or not good news, but just something to follow. 
seen a tweet from an hour ago that says Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg just told employees the company is implementing a hiring freeze and warned there will likely be more restructuring and downsizing to follow. Okay, hear me out. Could be good. Could be good there. That's that could be. Okay. Here, what is this? Here. Does Oculus turn out to be Stadia in two years? Oh. The user adoption has been better because we've seen the numbers on the hardware purchases. However, the surveys on whether people leave them and don't play them after like two months are fairly high. So I think there's a chance, but not as high of a chance because they do, you know, they are convincing people to buy the hardware. But if it's like, what is it, 95%? leave them sitting on the shelf after a few months of playing some bad games and they get some headaches. Um, yeah, but who knows? In October, which I guess now, this month, uh, they are apparently launching the next gen. So uh, I guess if that's a huge leap forward and, and some of the you know headache, room, you know the, the stuff, all the problems of VR go away, which I doubt they will, but just this next generation, uh, I think you could be right on, on Stadia. Uh, I don't think they're going to let it happen, though, because of all the money they're investing. Yeah, that's true. All right, let's move topics. We've, we've hit on gaming for a while. We got a yeah, comment here yeah. about Spotify's margins. Uh, let's see. Thank you, Sandeep. Uh, Spotify margins are barely gap positive long-term forecasted to be less than 10%. What's the bull case at this price? Well, I think simply if you're bullish on music streaming in general, which has been a nice little steady tailwind, and you're bullish on their investments into podcasts where they've dominated market share over the last few years or dominated, excuse me, market share gains and are gaining on Apple podcasts and other people and then audiobooks and some other audio mediums on top. But that's really not important today. Uh, those are very speculative. You also, have a market cap of uh, 17 billion enterprise value, is slightly lower. I think gross profit is about $3 billion. Uh, so we're at about five ish times trailing gross profit and they can convert about 40% of that, I'd say, to uh, cash flow. And if we look at gap operating margins, they will always be lower than cash flow because they have a permanent working capital advantage, similar to Amazon. Um, I'd say at their steady state, you're probably trading at 15 times to uh, maybe 15 times, say, free cash flow here. Or say operating cash flow. Maybe they have some capex. Let's make it a little more conservative. Operating cash flow. If the revenue keeps growing, I think that's how you make money. If that, sorry, also, that's a lot of numbers. Also, that's a lot of numbers there. Go, keep going. Uh, their guidance is for greater than ten percent operating margins. Uh, I'm trying to see what he said here. To be less than ten percent, yeah, no. Long term, I believe they got it for north of ten percent. Uh, that was yeah. operating, so I guess net might be lower, but yeah. Yeah, if you go to their investor deck, I, I think they they lay it out. They're a little optimistic, I think, maybe even more optimistic than us. But <laughs> yeah, they, they said 100 billion revenue and 20 billion dollars in, or no, yeah, what did they say 20 billion dollars in operating income. Uh, so they're trading at less than five times, uh, one times 2030 operating income. They hit those numbers, but that might be a bit aggressive. We got another comment around. Uh, hopefully, that answers some of your Spotify stuff. We've also written up. And it can be the financials can be tough to like talk over on the podcast. So uh, 
we've written up Spotify a couple of times on the Arch Capital website, and we just did a show on them for the CCM Plus. A little tag there. I know people will be seeing the ad during this episode, but CCM Plus five dollars a month. You can listen to that episode on why we also. I know. <laughs> I hate not. I kind of hate doing this because it's like, well, if you want our full research, you got to pay five bucks a month. But within the CCM Plus subscription thing, uh, there's our research files and our financial models in there, and that pretty much lays out the uh, the bull case in, in a quantitative way or on a spreadsheet. So maybe it's a little easier to digest looking at it on a spreadsheet. So if you want that, feel free to subscribe and. Uh, 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 do it on whatever your podcast player is, and then just uh, email us, and yeah. we'll uh, we'll throw you in the drive. Yep, that is that is how it works. Uh, all right, here's the other comment. How do you guys think? I'm I think you just missed a question. Caesar here. Thank you for coming back, Caesar. About the pundit calls for the market needing to fully capitulate. Basically, what he means here is that um. There's people calling for the market to go into that sharp downturn like there was in 2009, right at the end where everyone's totally panicking. Um, he says, they, the pundits, seem to be obsessed with hitting a certain VIX number, but it seems arbitrary to me. I think you're right. Um, yes, that it has happened a lot with market downturns, but they're extremely hard to predict. If you're someone that has... The more majority of investors are, you know, hopefully have a job and uh, have income coming in. Uh, if you see stocks at good prices, just buy. Don't worry about timing the market; it's futile. Um, and yeah, maybe you know some better opportunities will present themselves a couple months from now, but maybe they won't. It's so <laughs> it's a coin flip, really. Um, so that's not how we think about it. Some people might think about it differently, but that macro stuff, the VIX and whatever. I've yet to see. Well, what's the good? Uh, it, like, has there been a? a is, is there is there the legendary investors that are macro traders? Uh, are very few and far between. What is their Soros, Druckenmiller? <laughs> Maybe that's it that have had stand stood the test of time. But even Druckenmiller has some of his calls have been wrong. When yeah, he's, well, of when course, he, when, you know. So of Buffett's, I mean, so of some. I mean, of you can make money still, even if you're wrong sometimes, obviously. But uh, no, I, I, I think like everyone's saying, like we haven't even, uh, you know, we're not even close to capitulation yet. It's like, who cares? Yeah, right? it doesn't. I, I it don't. feels a little pretentious to me when people say that. Like, I don't know. Like, you guys don't know how bad it can get. It's like I walked. I walked uphill to school in the snow both ways, miles. Yeah. It feels like that, like the old kind of <laughs> old guy yelling at the clouds. Yeah, the two things there. The one, the more irrationally bearish people get, the more you should think that it's a good time to buy. Also, you probably should just ignore what other people are thinking because it just clouds your can cloud your judgment. Two, oh shoot, I forgot the other one. Um oh gosh. It's always going to seem I, I the most bearish at, yeah, yeah, at the at, lowest. I, that's what I was going to... Yeah, exactly. It's always... going. Everyone, by definition, the lower prices go, the more bearish everyone is going to seem. Because if they're more bearish, the prices are going to go lower. That's the, they, they work hand in hand. It's not like everyone can be bullish when the market was in, in the end of 2009. Everyone was bearish. 
So you have to say, okay, and I think the right thing to do, unless you're a David Tepper, a Druckenmiller, or whoever, you have to just ignore that. Uh, right? Like it's not, it's just the return on brain damage is just too much. And you're probably going to make mistakes. So we, we just ignore it fully. At the same time, those, those thoughts, like the pessimistic thoughts certainly fill my head more so in these moments. The, uh, but that's, you have to fight them. Yeah. It's weird. You have to fight your own brain and be like, but that means it's like, but they're like, okay, let's say the recession gets worse. Right. Which is a very real possibility. Unemployment could go up from here. Inflation could continue. Purchasing power. Consumer spending could get worse. Yeah, but the, those the market, could, those already got priced in three months ago. Like I'm talking markets, about for your individual stocks, though, for your individual businesses, the fundamentals could erode. Yeah, but that's got that. I mean, what I think, unless for some stuff that's still a premium valuation, I think that got priced in. Major on average, a few months ago, the market typically is pretty good at snuffing out these things, and I think they're very for it is typically. I'm a big, uh, we're big, uh, like anti whatever uh, efficient markets, but usually it's fairly good at saying, okay, like there's a lot of bad indicators here. There's a reason we're selling off, and the numbers have looked bad six months now. You know. Six months ago, you're like, why are we selling off? Except for outside of the Ukraine stuff, you know, things look fine. But six months later, you're like, okay, I get why we're selling off. But when things are the worst is actually when, like, the market will, how, what I'm trying to say here poorly is that the market typically can, uh, historically has recovered before the bad news ends. So, like, using that as a proxy is just not smart, in my opinion. Okay, I saw. And this is kind of a shameless, uh, a shameless plug for our, our, our sponsors now. But I, I read an article on Seven Investing. Uh, it was one of the free articles, and it was a good title. Basically, said, "Would you rather be right or make money?" Um, before getting into the article, what what are your thoughts? Well, there's a lot of ways that, and this this is by Christoph. Uh, sorry, I can't pronounce your last name. Piekarski. Uh, you might be laughing if you're listening to this, Christoph. But one of their lead analysts, yeah. Uh, they might be going a few different ways here, but I think that is correct. Like, it's a it's a correct question to ponder. Um, but yeah, continue. In investing, what would your answer be? Oh, uh, I mean, make money. But you have you want to be right, but usually you have to be like. Usually the two go. Usually, hand hand. usually goes hand in hand, especially if you don't short. Yeah. So, what if you were completely wrong and made a bunch of money? Would you be fine with that? Uh, yeah. But usually, if you do that, you're going to think you're right, and then make even more mis- make a bunch of mistakes. I feel like it is hard hard to be wrong and make money. Yeah, well, you can get lucky. Like, I suppose. Then you're, then, right for, you're right for the wrong reasons. Yeah, I guess. Um, but yeah, what did you think? Of, what did you think of the article? I thought it was interesting. I also think it's like applies to more than investing. Like, I think you see it in politics all the time, 
and this isn't uh, not on the making money part, but it's like, would you rather stay true to what everyone else who around around you believes, or would you rather like face the truth? And uh, it's like it's like that Munger quote of, uh, it's like if being right makes you unpopular with your uh with, with with your peer group, then to hell with them. Yeah, get new friends or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Munger doesn't have many friends, but he is right, <laughs> he is right a lot. He's, no. he's lived that out. No, he doesn't well, care. But... He's down in Montecito hanging with Oprah. Um, here, here's a quote from the article that I thought was interesting. Again, use our sponsor, or excuse me, use our code for our sponsor, uh, money. Uh, get $100 off your annual subscription. Very cool to try out. And you get that for life. Um, and also, if you're kind of just interested in their philosophy, they have a lot of free stuff like this article as well we're going through. Here's the quote. When investing in equities, being right often does not mean being profitable because of built-in expectations in terms of the market price at which you can buy. Rather, it is the magnitude, bolded, thank you, Christoph, by which you're right that your wealth will be built on. And for there to be oversized returns, most people have to be putting betting the other way Usually, that's how gaps between perceived value and actual value are made. That kind of goes back to the topic we were just talking about, where during the bear markets, when everyone's panicking, some stocks in the short run might look like they've been terrible investments. However, if you have, if you if if you if you think it's a good investment and everyone else thinks it's not, that's likely the opportunity. That's likely where the best opportunities are, and. The upside, if you're long, you know, excluding shorts here, this is long only, is theoretically infinite. I mean, you know, it's not just that you can double your money, you can 10x your money over a long, long period. It's interesting. I, we don't typically have that philosophy where make a lot of bets and they're higher risk, but some of them will work out extremely well. But that can, there's a reason that has worked for venture capitalists, um, you know, people like Seven Investing, stuff like that, where, it's hard to feel like, okay, we're taking that big risk on this company. And yeah, 70% of our uh, stocks are going to be wrong, but that you can only lose 100% of your money there. And most likely you're not going to lose 100%. You'll probably get cut in half maybe if you're wrong on that stock. But the ones that are right are going to go up by 10x over, say, a decade. And that makes, makes up for all the losses. So it's important sounds- to, I think, doing that upfront. If that's going to be your philosophy, I know a ton of individual individual investors have that philosophy. Having that, uh, thinking through stuff like that or reading articles like this upfront can be helpful because you know, like, okay, when two or three investments go poorly, or five or six, or fifty percent of your portfolio was duds, you know that that's okay. You expect that to happen, and you know you move forward. Yeah, I agree. Um, we uh, we had well, there's two things. We had a little bit of a debate yesterday around buying a home, which I oh, think yeah. is worth discussing. Now, you think buying oh. a home right <laughs> now? Well, I don't think I wouldn't say you think it's it's the least affordable it's ever been as a percentage would, of income, right? Yeah, my thoughts are if you can wait. But here's the thing. People are. I retweeted something to hopefully you'd see it because I didn't think of texting you to, to prove my point. Uh, oh, gosh. Where is it? 
where is it? Mortgage applications for a home purchase are down 29% from a year ago, off 43% from their seasonally adjusted peak in early 2021. So I think Prices are still elevated. Yeah, it takes usually multiple. Uh, it's not like stocks. It takes a lot of time for price adjustments to flow through. A lot of people are um, the anchor to the high price. What if, though, there's just such a shortage that they don't have to come down? Mm, Shouldn't maybe. prices be coming down like significantly? Maybe. Should they follow the mortgage applications? Uh, that's what I'm saying. They 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 are, but they it's not. It's gonna it's a lag take, it's just yeah. There's a lag effect. If here's here's just the thought that concerns me on uh just. All right, let me put a, you in a position. A, let me put you in a position then. Or actually, all right, go ahead, finish your thought. Is it from a broad economic perspective? As someone who is not an economist, if all if people if prices stay the same, so much more money. Um. And, and the number of people that are buying homes stays, say, roughly equivalent. So much more money is going to be going to mortgage payments than any other stuff. It's just, I think, it will crush the economy. And yeah, okay, a lot of people are locked into stuff, but incrementally, when I say crush the economy, that's wrong. But like, uh, what I meant to say is crush the spending power of a lot of these people, where their incremental spending on whatever, consumer goods, anything, will be diminished because you're happy you're spending twice as much on your mortgage. It's good. It'll make us more rational. Why? What? <laughs> It'll I make mean, us spend on things that are important, not waste we, money spending on s- stupid stuff. So you think that housing, you think that shelter costs, we should aim for those to be higher over time? I don't think it's that crazy that shelter costs are by and large the biggest expense. Oh, that's not, I mean, no, that's not crazy, but I don't think our goal should be for them to be higher. I think our goal should them to be as low as possible. Yeah, I suppose. I don't know. I feel like these things have a way of sorting themselves out. Oh, it'll sort themselves out. Yeah. And I think the prices are going to go down. <laughs> Either like, Okay, so Jay, that's, that's, Jay, that's a perfect look, question. That's a perfect, perfect lead into my question. All right. Scenario. You're married. You got two kids, young kids. You're in, let's say, a two-bedroom apartment. Would you wait to buy a house? You, have the, money to, you have the money to buy the house. Everyone's, everything's very, uh, there's, every situation's unique. You don't know. Well, how big you apart- try to time it or would you try to like, you, you know, you, you're planning to have a bigger family, let's say, would you, you know, how big is your apartment? How, what neighbor do you live in? I mean, all these situations are unique. I don't think you can pinpoint. You have to, take I don't think that. you'd wait. I don't think like, I don't think I know, but you think that, that's a, is that, is this, is that a straw man argument? I think that's, I think that's what you like. I think you can't uh, use the specific scenario. Straw man is, Opposing a position into an extreme yeah. belief and then arguing it. Uh, no, no, it's not. It's using just one situation. I don't know what if this is strong. Using one specific anecdote to say the whole thing's wrong. I just think that that's the specific scenario. That's not everyone. And that when you're looking at this stuff, you just have to look at the macro data because every situation is unique. Yeah, okay, some people are going to want to buy a home because they have a big family and it's 
it means stuff for them. But in aggregate, if mortgages are way, way more expensive and prices don't budge, that it's just something has to give. It's not you had, you had a tweet. You had a tweet that said something along the lines of why would anybody buy a home? I said right it. Now? Yeah. Well, it's a tweet. I mean, come on. I know, I know. But I'm saying if you were in that scenario, would you that's in in that case it's kind of like a oh well I'm gonna wait until prices get lower kind of thing. I mean you if can if you were rent, in that scenario you, though, would you wait? You can rent a home. I mean you don't you know you can rent a nice home. I know there's people that rent homes. You don't think I mean, yeah, I guess you could rent it, but what's wrong with renting? I feel like that's probably correlated with whoever the owners is his payments. That's so true. The rent to the home would probably go up. So yeah, but if they locked in, if they have lower mortgages, then you would be paying now. It can be lower if they're locked in at a lower mortgage rate. Yeah, but at the same time, it's probably like it's also correlated to the market around it. So like what rental prices are going for, you know what I mean? Which I think in general is probably correlated to affordability. Yeah. Yeah. So, so why, but I'm just saying like, I would buy a home, not like the current home price. If I'm buying this for 30 years and it feels like the right home and I can afford it isn't as big of a deal to me. If I think it'll go down over the next three years, five years, I don't really care. If I if it feels like it's the right need. Look, if you can afford it, that's fine. But under the current conditions, lots more people cannot at the current price. I mean, yeah, if, if you can afford it, yeah, why not? And you can still do everything you want to do. But it's just... At the like at the current prices, people will not compare to where they're when they were sub three percent mortgages versus seven percent. It's just not like where's the money coming from? That's just my question. Scotland cool. says, "What are your thoughts on Powell saying housing needs a reset?" Correct. As two people that are not homeowners, yes, housing needs a reset. But don't you think every non-homeowner thinks that? Exactly. That's that was that was saying that as a joke. Like, all right. All right. Well, well also this is my thinking. The Fed don't don't fight the Fed. I know that's a joke people use, but seriously, if they're going to crush housing, let them. Don't fight them. They want to crush housing because housing is such a big portion of inflation. Well, it's happening. People are not fighting the Fed right now. Mortgage applications are down, what do you say, 29%? 29%, uh, 43% from the seasonally adjusted peak. Would you rather buy a house right now or go long open doors? <laughs> Depends what house, obviously. Like houses are, you know, every house is unique, right? You could get a steal somewhere, uh, but yeah, I'd probably rather buy a house than go long open door. I mean, come on, that's a zero, but. <laughs> I guess the, so I guess the SBC is fake then. That is but true. It, Credit to, uh, gosh, what's his name? I'm blanking on his name. Reboy or no, the comment no, no. Willis Capital on Twitter? Yeah, yeah. We've had him on the show like a long time ago, but it's been a while. That's true. We should get him back um, on. All right. Did you see this? Netflix is going to have a show on the rise of Spotify? Yeah, I saw that. I thought it was 
strange because one, it's not that exciting. It's not like we work. Um, two, is it just for like the people that are bullish Spotify? I don't understand. <laughs> I don't see what the audience is here, but uh, I will. I, I will. Uh, I know we will be watching as people that are interested in that business. But <laughs> I, I look. Maybe they should take that content spend <laughs> and uh, put that on some video games. I think maybe they could get better ROI. Who knows? It could be a good show. I know that the, the, maybe that moment where people Steve like Jobs, Spotify, maybe when, yeah, it's a popular company. People either people, uh, well, people like to hate on it too. They think it's evil, uh, which is not, but that's for another time. Now that, that moment in remember the story of how Steve jobs called up uh, Daniel Eck at like one in the morning and then just, just breathe breathed, the phone, breathed, breathed heavily into the phone. That could be a great moment, but I doubt maybe the rest of a, it, the rest maybe, of it's going to be boring as hell. It's them just well, like, if they get a good jobs character, if they get a good jobs character and they you don't know, have that iTunes kind of competition type deal where they're the big bad ones and Spotify is trying to defeat them and then the the labels are colluding, that could be interesting, right? You could have the labels, you could have some crazy, you know, Maybe basically, people will finally understand that Spotify aren't the bad guys. If they pin Spotify as evil in the show as the big evil people, then the show will be bad because it's just hard to do. Because it's like, okay, you got some tech coders and they're the big evil people. It's not that exciting. But if they have, you know, the labels, you know, you could have some like basically succession type characters at the labels, the big, you know, I, you know, how what, Sean label. Parker's going to be back in full yeah. effect. Sean Parker will be in there. I don't know if they get Justin Timberlake again, uh, like in the social network. Um, I, I think there could be. Yeah. And now that I'm thinking about it, if they do it correctly with the labels and stuff, that could be fun. However, there's not that much there like yeah. i think it's like a maybe a limited series could be fun i found it so uh someone tweeted this out that spencer walsh who i would love to get in touch with but uh doesn't have open dms so if you hear this please open your dms um he, he posted this sort of quote from i think it's from a conference call uh, but it's from the figs ceo you remember figs the like scrubs yeah. Yeah, she was uh she was on Invest Like the Best, so it could have been from there too. Okay. She's oh yeah, it was from there. Uh Patrick says, What else do lazy companies do? And she said, outsource too much. They look where everybody is, they go to the competitive market, not to the place where nobody is. They overhire, they have five times as many people as they need to actually build a business the right way. They look for shortcuts on the product. Funding Facebook and Google all day or Meta and Google all day is not the right way to build a brand. I was like, all right, I need to keep them on the watch list after hearing that because that sounds like a yeah. very sound, that that seems like a very rational philosophy right there. Like, wow, that's just a breath of fresh air. Yeah, hearing that made me, that was probably the most, uh, like I was not that sold on the business because I don't see how scrubs could, I, I don't understand the TAM for scrubs, but. Um, it's just, yeah, I mean, it's just uh, the, whatchamacallit. It's just tough. The retail, but you know, apparel stuff. Excuse me, apparel. Um, but I like that. Yeah, that was great. Now, on the flip side of bad expenses at a company, here's a tweet. Someone was exposing. I think there's like an expose on McKinsey bad consulting practices. Um, this is a tweet from Mike Forsyth. Don't sorry, I don't know who that is, but verified account. I don't know. 
Here's a grab from a slide deck McKinsey prepared for Altria around 2016, showing a mock-up of an iPhone app for a loyalty program for Marlboro cigarettes. Buy smokes, get little prizes like bottle openers. How, how, what a waste of money, one, to pay McKinsey a lot of money for this really poor-looking PowerPoint slide about how you can make an iPhone app to give your users a loyalty program. Wow, what an amazing idea, a loyalty program. Who could think of a loyalty program? Oh, wait, every business in existence has thought of a loyalty program. And second, the, the, I mean, you don't need the loyalty programs for cigarettes. They have a highly, like the whole point is they're highly addictive and you don't need a loyalty program. I don't know. I saw that and I was like, the expenses that are going around at these companies is just, especially large companies, is just absurd. And that's a business with like 50% operating margins. Yeah. The businesses have to be so good that even the McKinsey fees, McKinsey fees, excuse, I don't even know if I ever say that. It's McKinsey, McKenzie, whatever. McKinsey. Uh, they don't even, yeah. You can't even see him. All right, we probably got time for one more topic. Um, I don't know. We're doing housing this week, starting a new recording. Uh, tomorrow, I guess, on that new theme. Housing seems interesting. I guess we'll probably be discussing the housing market because all I thought about when we're looking at the first company we're doing, NBR, is you kind of have a, you have to have a little bit of thoughts of where the housing market is going to go when you do your valuation work. On a, on a one of those, and it's tough. Like it's such. Even though we were both debating that, it's 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 a big unknown. Like we were, the, 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 a lot of things could happen, and it, a lot of it is controlled by the Federal Reserve, which is out of your control. Okay, yeah, but I would say that like the housing shortage, the the, the supply of homes is more important than the price of homes for these businesses. Wouldn't you think? Sort of, but also what if they're all okay, other than Zillow, the rest of these are home builders that we're looking at. So I would think that they care more about volume than pricing. It's hard to double your volume in a short period of time. And if prices go down a lot, that'll affect your revenue and margins. I mean, the operating leverage will be there on supply costs. So I think it matters. Yeah, I suppose. But we haven't. That is a well, tease. I know what I know what you'll be saying about most of these businesses then. <laughs> hey, who knows? I like the one we were looking at first. Um, here's another topic that we can close off with. The mat- mysterious ad slump of 2022 Vox article. Uh, here's a quote from it. You can ask someone who runs a privately held media company off the record how their business is doing. I'm glad I run a private company, they said, which doesn't have to report its results in public. One of them told me this week. Seems like the advertising landscape as a whole is suffering. And I think it's pretty easy to see why. Because there was such easy targets uh, during the pandemic to advertise products when people had all this extra money and stuff like that. And now the return on that is just so much lower. Um, so I think just looking at like having that at like the advertising landscape backdrop or excuse me, having that the dynamic where the advertising, whatever, is uh, just the overall spending is kind of slowing, right? Having that as a backdrop when looking at earnings reports the next few quarters will be important um, 
because some numbers might not be as bad as you think. Uh, and some numbers might be actually a lot better than you think, if you get what I mean. All right, we got two minutes, two questions, or two comments, I guess, in the, in the chat. The new oh. Dahmer show with Evan Peters is great on Netflix. Other than that, Netflix hasn't made much of interest to me recently. I agree. I have not spent a whole lot of time on Netflix lately. Uh, yeah, I wonder if the fantasy shows from and then the Star Wars stuff is kind of hurting them, if you know what I mean. Amazons, HBOs, that could be hurting them currently. Because both those are getting gigantic audiences. I'm assuming Andor from Star Wars will get gigantic audience, and that's time spent that could be on Netflix. Yeah, Rob McElhoney, who is from the show Always Sunny in Philadelphia, posted some picture of like the most popular shows right now. And it was, okay, yeah, number one, House of the Dragon. Um, number two, She-Hulk, Attorney at Law. Number three, Lord of the Rings, The Rings she of Hulk, Power. She-Hulk, no way, She-Hulk. Oh. Swear to God, yeah. Dang, that Marvel, the Marvel is uh, still alive and well, even though we, we think, were haters. I think this was before Andor. And then uh, four, Welcome to Wrexham, which is their show on. Uh, uh, oh, he's, ta- he's talking his book. He's yeah, on app. That's on FX. But he's also at Apple, so I don't know why. if this is ratings or it just says most in demand breakout series. So most in demand, I would say. That means Netflix is not on that list of those four. Um, no, yeah. But the Dahmer show is kind of interesting. I agree. And then Caesar says, I feel like no one's talking about the political risk with Brazil's elections, but maybe I'm overthinking. That is correct. I had no idea there was a Brazil election or risks there. Um, so yeah, we have no <laughs> no thoughts. I mean, it might be worth looking into. I, yeah, I don't know a whole lot about it. I, I heard someone mention it, but I couldn't remember who. There was, uh, oh, Rob Citrone runs some big portfolio. He was on Capital Allocators a while ago, and I think he talked about it, if I remember correctly. Is there an uh, upcoming election? Is it this fall? I have to look into that. Could be interesting. However, I might be getting the wrong country. He might not have talked about <laughs> Brazil. Also, like, what's going to happen? Is their currency going to devalue? Like, that's already happening. But True. it could get a lot worse. I, I might shrug my shoulders to something bad there. I don't know anything about it. Um, but that's going to do it. Thank you all for tuning in. And with the questions, Scotland and Caesar and others, Sandeep, thank you. Uh, check out Seven Investing, code money. We're going to be talking about them a lot over the next few months. So if you want to support the show and get better research in your portfolio, use code money, get $100 off your annual subscription. Remember, we are not financial advisors. Anything we say on the show is not formal advice or recommendation. We are general partners at Arch Capital and clients may hold securities discussed in this podcast. Thank you all for listening or watching. Remember, 12 p.m. Pacific time every Thursday or 3 p.m. Eastern time, right before the market is about to close. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time. Hey, Simon, we wanted to ask you a few questions about 7investing so listeners could get an idea of what they're getting. What inspired you to start the company and what exactly is 7investing? Well, hey, Ryan, thanks again for having me. You know, we from years of working in the investing industry, was inspired by conversations with people that would just always have kind of the same negative perception of the stock market, right? It's it's too hard, or I don't have time for this, or this is stacked against me. 
And those conversations kind of led me to say, hey, we need to create a site that actually does inspire people to say, you can take control of your financial future. You can invest in stocks. You can find good stocks to buy and hold for long periods of time. And at the end of the day, too, we know that everybody is different. Um, we don't believe that there is one stock that fits for everyone, right? Maybe you're a, a dividend-loving, you know, paycheck-cashing uh, income investor that might want an option that's going to be a lower-risk dividend-paying stock, especially right now with the economy being what it is. Uh, and then other people might say, hey, you know, I'm ready to hold on for 20 or 30 years. I want to take some swings for the fences. Let's go after those high-growth opportunities. And so I, I said, you know, this would be something that would be even more fun rather than just doing it educational and, as, and by myself. I said, what if I brought together a team of seven advisors, all with a diverse background and a diverse perspective of the stock market? So we could uncover more stones and look at a bunch of different stocks with a bunch of different investing styles and a whole bunch of different industries. And so seven investing is, is kind of the uh, the genesis of all of those that we started in uh, in March of 2020. And we said, let's look at a whole bunch of different stocks. Let's do the legwork of the analysis and let's present our seven favorite actionable ideas every month for investors to choose from. Now, let's start the conversation about which of these stocks is right for you and which one might be the right fit for your portfolio, knowing that investing is a very personal thing. All right. If you are a subscriber of 7investing, what do you get? Can you give an overview of what subscribers get? On the very first of every month, Brett, we release our seven new recommendations. So we are uh, coming up on October 1st here, at least in the recording of this. And you know, on October 1st, we'll release seven recommendation reports. Some of them will be low risk. Some of them will be high risk. Some of them will be biotech. Some of them will be financial services. We run the full gamut. And as a member, you get immediate access to all of the new reports. But you also get access to all of our old recommendations as well. We track all of them in real time on our scorecard at 7investing.com slash recommendations. And we also provide company updates on all of those previous recommendations as well. We check in on how things are going. And sometimes we even see red flags that we think people should be aware of. There's risks for any opportunity at the time that you recommend it. And sometimes it's really willing, it's really, it's really needed for investors to kind of understand the risk and reward relationship. And then the last part of it is in addition to issuing new recommendations and providing updates on them is we know that this is a long-term journey. We know that investing is something that we want to take uh, years, if not decades, to accomplish whatever we want to get to as, as the end goal. And so we always, every month, make it a point to be very available for our subscribers to ask us questions. We have a members-only call uh, right in the middle of every single month. We have a community discussion forum that we that we have available 24-7 to not only talk to our advisors, but also other investors. I think that's one of the key differentiators for 7investing is that, you know, we know this is a long-term journey. We know it's a very personal thing. We know they're going to have questions along the way. We don't want to just broadcast stock picks and disappear. We want to be here with you uh, throughout this entire journey. And you mentioned... So seven recommendations each month. Sometimes those might be repeats, but obviously there's a lot of companies now in the seven investing universe. So how do members get a grasp on the the advisor's conviction around certain ideas? Like which ones do do they are do they have a way of knowing which uh, whether advisors like certain ones more? That's the most common question we've gotten, actually, since we started is what's your favorite ideas right now? You know, we've done the diligence on almost 200 unique companies now and put them on the scorecard and people would say, hey, this is too much to keep up with. How do I even know where to start? 
And so we've kind of uh, evolved as, as a company. You know, one thing that we've started doing is best buys every month. Each advisor gets to pick any of their or another advisor's previous recommendations and put the flag on it that says, this is my best buy for October. And we publish those for subscribers. The other thing that we've started doing is issuing conviction ratings on companies that are also right there on the scorecard. So if you see a previous recommendation, we go everything from potential sell, which is the most negative flag we can put on a stock, to strong buy, which is the most positive bullish flag that we can mark things with. And you can filter through all of those to really quickly see here's some of our favorite opportunities. And we've taken this even one step further now, Ryan, which is we've created a strong buy portfolio where every quarter now we've gone ahead and self-selected as a team through a pretty methodical process, our 20 favorite ideas, our 20 highest scoring companies that we've collectively come up with, our favorites of the entire scorecard. And we put these into what we're calling a strong buy portfolio that we publish each quarter, also available as an added benefit for no extra charge for seven investing members. All right, last question here. What does it cost to become a seven investing subscriber? Uh, and as a, you know, we'll talk about, or we have talked about before, if you're a listener, use code money to get a hundred dollars off your annual subscription. That's right. Yeah. We do have a monthly option. You know, you can come in and check out the entire scorecard for a month, just to see what you're looking at for $49 a month. Uh, but our most popular plan is actually the annual option because it's at a discount to that. Uh, in fact, we've got a discount on the discount, like you mentioned, Brett, uh, $3.99 for the year is our is our annual option price. But if you use money, the Chit Chat Money promo code, it's down to $300. So you're basically getting the, the subscription for half price if you sign up for the annual offer with that promo code. That does not expire after the first year. As long as you remain an active subscriber, you get to lock in that $100 off a year benefit. All right. Well, as he mentioned, use that code money. Thanks for joining us, Simon. Thanks very much for having me.